All right, love this series. Love the story of the book of Exodus. Had a chance a number of years ago now to travel over to Egypt and spend a few days there and, and just uh, be able to see some amazing things. Went out to Cairo Museum and saw King Tut's you know, gold death mask and all the gold that he had. It was just amazing stuff. And then uh, the, the, uh, the pyramids and then uh, out into the Sinai Peninsula and uh, got up at 2 a.m. one morning and climbed to the top of Mount, the traditional side of Mount Sinai. It was up there for sunrise. It was beautiful, incredible, rugged mountains. And then uh, down at the base of Mount Sinai is a, a Greek Orthodox monastery, St. Catherine's, where they found the oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament, which I love that, I love that stuff. Codex Sinaiticus is what it's called. And, and so it's cool to be able to be there. They actually have sort of hokey, what they say is the burning bush there, the actual burning bush. It's like the world's largest buffalo or something, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, it was a fun trip. It was great to be able to take that. Good too. To the, I really enjoyed uh, the vacation. Becky and I just got off of being up in Alaska. Wow, great trip. And what struck me was up there, just the beauty of you know, and I, of course, I was with Becky all day, so. <laughs> I just got another piece of pie. <laughs> yeah, the, the beauty and the vastness of it, it seemed like those spruce and birch forests and those snow-capped mountains just went on and on and on forever. It's incredible. We went into Denali. We saw grizzlies and wolves and caribou and, you know, just anything, you name it, we saw it. And then we went down, took a six-hour cruise on the ocean, saw whales and sea lions and glaciers calving off into the sea and just amazing stuff. And then, and then uh, took a trip up to the Arctic Circle and uh, went across the Yukon and it's a full day. Let me tell you, if you're, if you're ever in Alaska and thinking you're going to go to the Arctic Circle... Um, I enjoyed it, but you've got to have the right mindset to want to do that because it is a long, rough day. Traveled on what's known as the Dalton Highway. Maybe you've heard of it. It's on the show Ice Road Truckers. I've never watched the show, but I've seen the commercials before. I think we've got a picture here. There's, that river is right there. Then right alongside the river, there's two lines there. One of them is the Alaska Pipeline, and then uh, Dalton Highway's the one furthest away from the river. Let me tell you, it is a stretch to call that a highway, okay? Because uh, it, is, it is rough. And, and, and in, in some places, uh, it's mostly dirt and gravel, but in some places they actually you, um, put down asphalt. I don't know why, because it is ridiculous. Um, the, it's great with the dirt and gravel because they can grade it. The asphalt, you got that permafrost, and it just buckles it, and it's just... And it's, it's terrible. I mean, we're, Becky and I are in the back of a van for 12 hours, and we are hitting every, we are flying, literally. And, and it was rough, but it, so you got to have the right mindset. But I enjoyed it. I had a great, it was a great vacation. But like Kevin mentioned last week, the greatest road trip of all time happened in the epic story of the Exodus. It involved two million people. For over 40 years, a trip that should have actually taken them 11 days, 40 years. Why? Because they didn't believe 
God's word. They didn't believe his promises. And so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that unbelieving generation died off before they could ever enter the promised land. Last week, Kevin talked about how as God told Moses about going back to get the people out of Egypt, that Moses had all these questions and excuses trying to find some way of not having to do this. And it became apparent that it didn't matter what God provided or what God promised. Moses just didn't want to go. So God paired up Moses with Aaron and these two old guys. Moses is 80, Aaron's 83, and they head over to talk to Pharaoh. And God sends with Moses some miraculous signs because Moses is just not thinking that Pharaoh's going to respond to him. So God sends him with some signs, some abilities, some sort of wild signs to sort of take uh, Pharaoh's attention and, and get a hold of it. And so he goes down there. He's able to, to you know, to... Uh, uh, throw Aaron's rod on the ground, it becomes a snake, and, and he, he's got the hand that can become leprous and, and then cleansed and not leprous, and then he's able to pour out water from the Nile on the ground and it becomes blood. He's got all this stuff, but Pharaoh's not impressed. In fact, Pharaoh actually makes the Hebrew people work harder, not exactly what Moses was looking for. And so he didn't turn, and the amazing thing is what Pharaoh didn't realize was those miraculous signs that Moses had were actually opportunities for him, opportunities to recognize who the real God is, the true God, and, and to turn, but he didn't turn. And so God moved on. When those wow signs didn't work, he moved to sort of some signs that are more like grab you type of signs, you know. Sometimes God has to do that with us, right? He's like, grab you by the collar and say, hey, listen up, and just give a little shake. And so that's where the plagues come in, and they begin to grab Pharaoh. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the plagues. People have responded several different ways to the plagues. Some people have said, well, they, there's, there's just no reality to them. Not, historically, it didn't happen. It's just made-up stories, of course, that doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, when you've got two million people involved, somebody would know that, right? <laughs> and somebody would tell that. So when Moses starts writing this down and that becomes part of Scripture, somebody among the two million would have said, wait a second, that didn't happen. Nobody does that. The other thing is, there is an ancient document, a uh, 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 um, a papyrus, the Ipiware papyrus, if I can say, say, say all that, <laughs> where that, that is written in Egyptian that from the time of the Exodus that contains an Egyptian poem that recounts and parallels a number of the plagues that tells what happened. So even if you don't believe Scripture, if you're the type of person that's just a skeptic, there is outside evidence that what we have recorded in Scripture is, in fact, reality. So good reason to take it as truth. Other people have said, well, they're just natural occurrences, maybe a little bit more intense than normal, but nothing miraculous. And they'd say, well, for instance, like the Nile, the Nile... Uh, in June, uh, has these microscopic organisms start growing in it, and so it sort of turns red. 
And then in July, along come a bunch of frogs, typically. And then in the fall, along come flies and lice. And, they, and so they start naming out all the natural occurrences. Of course, that doesn't make sense, does it? Because that wouldn't have grabbed Pharaoh at all. And Pharaoh would be thinking, this is what always happens. What are you talking about? This is just normal stuff. So it doesn't make sense to say this is just a natural occurrence. And plus, on top of that, you've got Moses' prediction of them. You've got a gradual increase in severity. You've got a design to them that's designed to bring change. It can't be that they're simply natural occurrences, which brings us to the conclusion that they were actual miracles designed to bring about God's purpose. And somebody says, okay, if I take that, if I believe that, then if that's true that God miraculously brought on these plagues, then what about the fairness of God? What's, you know, since, since God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how is that fair? Well, we could point out that as you're reading through them, apparently, initially, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We don't see the phrase that the Lord hardened his heart initially. It's always Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which we're all perfectly capable of doing, aren't we, as human beings? I mean, we all did it. And sometimes maybe we still do. God calling us, God pulling us, God giving us example, God giving us opportunity moment after moment to turn to him. And what do we do? We say, no thanks. And some of you here this morning, you've gone through life that way. I don't think it's by chance that you're sitting here right now. I think it's God giving you another opportunity, pulling you, calling you. We harden our hearts. That's what Pharaoh did. So first of all, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But then also we see the Apostle Paul dealing with that fairness question. He talked about it specifically this story in, in Romans chapter 9. He said this, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? See, Paul's answer is God has the right and we would learn a great lesson if we would just learn we don't have the right to question God. Who are you, oh man? Paul went on, he said, this is great stuff. Listen to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory 
upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And then down in verse 30, he says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even their righteousness which is by faith? So Paul's like this. When we're talking about, hey, why would God do this? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would and you know do what apparently looks like from some of us? You know, maybe it doesn't seem fair. He says, what if? What if God, who had the power and the will to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, instead, he endured with patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He, what if God endured evil people, people who had said no to him, people who had rejected him, people that had said, not right now, God. What if he did that so that he could make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy? That's what God's been doing from the very beginning of time, hasn't it? He's been waiting he could, he could just, he could legitimately and justly wipe out the earth. But he hasn't done that. Why? He has the power to do it. He wants justice in the world. So why hasn't he done that? Because he's wanting to extend time for people that he wants to draw to himself to experience his glory. Why why hasn't God made everything right in this world? Why didn't he clear out this? Because in order to do that, he had to wipe out mankind. And he doesn't want to do that yet. Why? Because he's calling you. Called me to himself. When you look at the story of the plagues, everybody's going, well, I don't know how fair this is. Just think about it this way. God was merciful. He could have wiped them out completely. And it would have been right. He didn't do that. He gave them opportunity after opportunity to turn to him. And also, on top of that, he was being merciful and gracious to his people to protect them. So he's doing what he does to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Why? So that he can bring his people out because he loves them the same that he does for us, right? He loves us. And so he's pulling us out for his purposes. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, endured with patience vessels of wrath? Why? To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy so that you could understand and hear the truth. Paul answers the question, so if some Jewish believer had said, hey, it's not fair that God will allow Gentiles to become part of his family, and Paul says, well, God has that right, though. See, if it wasn't fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, if he didn't have that right, then he didn't have the right to choose us either. But he had that right. He had the right to harden Pharaoh, and he had the right to extend mercy to us. And he did. 
He had a purpose in choosing us, and he had a purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart. Listen to it. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. I love them. I'm going to bring them out. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians are going to find out who the real God is. They don't know yet. They're going to find out. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. There's two things I'm doing this for. There's so that I can protect and provide for my people. I'm going to pull them out of here. And I'm going to reveal myself to the Egyptian people. Was it legitimate for God to harden Pharaoh's heart for those purposes? Yes. The plagues not only show the total inability of the king of Egypt to resist him, they show the awesome power of God to rescue his people from the land of Egypt and to care for them and provide for their needs. And those plagues still demonstrate his power to us today. They encourage us that God has a ha- power to handle all of our issues. I mean, if God could pull his people out of 400 years of slavery from the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He can handle our problems, can he? If God can do what he did in the plagues in order to save his own people, think what he'll do and has done for us as his children. They show the awesome power of God, and they encourage us. He can handle our problems in amazing ways. But even more so, they tell us that he had the will and power to choose us to be in his family. These are earth-shaking events. I mean, can you imagine being an Egyptian back then? <laughs> I mean, or these, these things happen today. Now, there'd be complete hysteria. People would be demanding government action. We'd be wondering who was to blame for not dealing with this issue fast enough, and why didn't someone see this coming? And when you, when you get down to taking a look at them, you realize they aren't as random as they might seem at first. In fact, they seem to challenge some of the more powerful gods of Egypt, and they had a lot of gods, at least 80 of them that we know of. And some of the most powerful had to do with the areas these plagues affected. Like, for instance, the water turned to blood. The, the, the first, this first plague, it hits home. Especially, you know, for the Egyptians, they, see, the Nile was so important to them for their economy, for transportation, for irrigation of crops, for fishing. And religiously, they had a number of gods that were associated with the Nile, gods that, that dealt with issues of fertility and blessing and happiness. I was in Egypt. I, I was on the Nile. I took a dinner cruise. It was in the evening. I was glad for taking it on the evening because I couldn't see the water then. I'd seen it earlier there, and that's, that water is nasty. It is polluted. But they still use it today. It's still important to them for transportation. And I think I saw ladies washing dishes and stuff down in the, down in the river. I saw kids swimming in it and playing in it. I just thought, oh. But it's so important for them now, but it was way more important for them back then. 
the value and power of many of their gods will, become, will be questioned as a result of this plague. Osiris, you probably heard his name, was one of the greatest gods in Egypt. The Nile was believed to be his bloodstream. You're going to call into question the power of Osiris by doing this. Sepak, uh, a god who took the form of a crocodile, was so highly regarded that that when a crocodile was forced to leave the water, the rich ladies, the ladies of, of high social status would go and kneel down there at the edge of the water and drink from the pool where the crocodile had wallowed. And Pharaoh's answer to the blood thing was to bring in his magicians again and try to counterfeit that miracle and make more. And then we read that Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. No, no concern. What a jerk. Because people are suffering. I'm going to go back to the house. Even that uh, papyrus I talked about earlier, the Ipiware papyrus, talks about the fact they had nothing to drink because the water had turned to blood. You know, anytime you got blood for drinking water, you know your day's not going too good, right? You turn on your faucet, out comes blood. It's like some kind of horror movie. So the second plague came, frogs over the land. Frogs. For a lot of ladies especially, you know, not, not real appealing, right? I got two little grandsons that would love it. But uh, for, normally frogs were bad things in Egypt. In fact, they were appreciated as signs of fruitfulness and blessing and harvest. They even had a goddess who's was a frog named Hecht. So normally they like frogs, but now frogs are everywhere, in the houses, on the beds, in the ovens, in the bowls, and uh, on the people, there's frogs. Can you imagine going to bed at night, and you pull up the sheets, and there's wet frogs laying in your bed. That's, where, that's what it was. They were everywhere. And I don't want to jump to any conclusions. <laughs> but that, that popular goddess Hecht must have quickly become very unpopular, right? And Pharaoh, in a not real wise move, called for his magicians again to make more frogs. You got to question his smarts, right? I mean, Pharaoh's like, you make our water blood, we'll make more. You, you make, you overrun us with frogs, I'll show you, we'll make more frogs. Moses must have been like, yeah, Pharaoh, that's, that's showing us, you know? I mean, but then it becomes too much. And so he has to call Moses and Aaron to get rid of the frogs. And he does this pre pretend repentance thing until things clear up, which we see this routine go on, right, through all these, these, all these plagues. You know, he's, the pressure gets too much, it gets too bad, and so Pharaoh, you know, feeling the pressure, does sort of a repentance thing, begs for forgiveness or begs for them to take it away or whatever, and then and the pressure is relieved, and then what happens? His heart's hardened, right? That happens over and over again. When he saw there's relief, his heart's hardened. So that brings on the plague of gnats, gnats, little biting gnats everywhere, gnats, driving everybody crazy. Uh, we're not sure what God this may have been directed at, and some people have suggested maybe this directed at the priesthood of the Egyptians, they were all into cleanliness. They were very clean. They washed a lot. They wore white linen. They were into being clean. And so now, though, because of the gnats, they're like everybody else. They got little bugs all over them. 
and Pharaoh calls for the magicians. Just make some more. And they're like, yeah, we can't do this. This must be the finger of God, they say. Wow. That's funny to me that gnats bring them to the conclusion that God's at work here. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He isn't bugged enough by the gnats. So God sends a plague of flies. Sorry. God sends a plague of flies, swarms of flies, and along with flies come maggots, yeah. The land was laid waste. They destroyed everything. And again, as soon as the flies are gone, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So a plague falls on the livestock. Not the livestock of Israel, by the way. We see the amazing sovereign control of God in protecting his people. This devastated the economy of Egypt. And religiously, the, the Egyptians were very much in the cows. They worshipped the apis bull and the goddess Hathor that was represented by a cow. And the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I mean, talk about pride. He had it. He's digging in. And so along came the plague of boils, boils, ulcers, sores all over people. And, and, and Pharaoh calls for the magicians again. Can you imagine? You talk about a guy that doesn't care about his people. They're suffering, covered with boils, and Pharaoh's calling for the magicians. Why? He wants them to make more. Wow. They can't come, though. Why? Because they're covered with boils, too. They can't stand in court to accomplish this. They're hurting so much. And the Egyptian god of medicine, Imhotep, is unable to respond to their prayers. And so along comes a plague of hail, very heavy hail. This is obviously not a natural phenomenon. It barely, in some parts of Egypt, it doesn't rain at all. Cairo gets like two inches a year. Now there's hail, but not just any hail. This is hail large enough to kill you. And Pharaoh's looking for the hail to stop, and when it stops, he hardens his heart. So along come the plague of locusts. You get the picture here? God being merciful. God giving them opportunity after opportunity. Why? So he could reveal himself to them, who's the real God, and he could pull out his people that he loved. Along comes plague of locusts. And facing the threat of locusts, Pharaoh offers to let the men go, but not the women and children. Obviously not acceptable. And so Pharaoh begs forgiveness. And then when their locusts are removed, his heart is hardened. And then came the plague of darkness. Well, that flies in the face of several of their powerful, most powerful gods. It's a direct rebuke of the sun god Ra that they believe provided them with light and warmth. It's a rebuke to Amun-Re, the chief deity of Thebes, who is considered to be their national god. It's a, it's a rebuke of Horus, another sun god. It's a rebuke of Aten, the sun god proclaimed by Akhenaten, the later pharaoh, to be the only god. And now Pharaoh says, okay, you've done this. We're in darkness. You can go if you, if you can remove this plague, but you have to leave your animals behind. And Moses is like, that doesn't work for us either because we have to have the animals for sacrifices. And Pharaoh's heart's hardened. And then it brings us to the final plague that the firstborn of all of Egypt will die, including Pharaoh's own. 
which directly confronts the belief that Pharaoh was a god as the Egyptians believed. No, he was just a man like any other man. And it happened one night, and there was mourning throughout Egypt. It's horrible. Every family touched. Again, people look at this story, they want to question the fairness of God, they wonder about the justice of God, but we know Scripture teaches that all of us are deserving of God's judgment. We're all guilty and deserving of hell. We've heard that, but sometimes we read a story like this, and and the gravity of it challenges our thinking. Do we really believe that God has the right to judge sin and that all men are born guilty before Him? Because that's the reality and what we really should be seeing in this story, again, is not the, oh, isn't God, un- is God unfair? Is God unjust? Is- look how harsh God is. No, what we should be seeing is the incredible patience of God waiting, giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for man to turn to him and the protection of God for his people. How he protected them brings us to chapter 12. The night the final plague would hit, killing all the firstborn. This is what happens. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boil it all with water, but rather roast it with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. Powerful stuff. The Passover. What became a national celebration of God's protection of his people. They were told to take an unblemished lamp, to kill it at twilight, take the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel. They were to eat that entire animal that night cooked over a fire. The blood, though, was to be a sign. He says, when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will come on you. The blood provided protection. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? No wonder it's a perfect picture for us. As you remember, Jesus was celebrating the Passover, the evening of the Last Supper. 
And with the picture of the Passover, he gave us a new picture, a new covenant, his provision and protection for us in his blood. The promise that he changed everything for us. If we're relying on Jesus' death for our salvation, the promise that he has provided everything we need to stand before God one day. The guarantee that he has accomplished it for us and the protection that keeps us as his children and protects us in life. And we walk through that life with the same application to our lives that the children of Israel had in theirs. In Exodus chapter 10, just a couple more verses, this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you, listen, you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. I, I want you to know something. This is why I've done this, that you may know that I'm the Lord. Not Amun-Re, not Osiris, not Hek, not Ra, not Imhotep, not any of the gods of Egypt. And not any of the resources that we have that we may look to for answers. You tell these stories, he says. Tell them to your sons, tell them to your grandsons. How I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them. You tell that story. So we tell that story, don't we? So we're doing this morning. We tell the story. Stories told in our children's ministry. It's told here. The stories are told. We tell the story here. We tell the story, all the stories of the Old Testament. Why are we telling those stories? Why do we tell the stories of the New Testament? So we would know who God is. So that others would know <coughs> who he is. We need to always remember that the same God who made a mockery of the great and powerful Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and their gods is the same God who rules our world. The same God who brought the people out of Egypt, that same God is our Father. And the plagues show us something of his power and his willingness to deliver and his ability to, to deliver what he's promised. Sort of funny, these crazy, terrible things that happened 3,400 years ago. They encourage us today. They encourage us to walk faithfully. They encourage us to trust in our God who can take us through anything we face. He's protecting us and He's provided for us. And He promised it through the blood of His own Son. You look at the story of the plagues, and we see the patience of God toward unrepentant men and the provision of God for those that are His. Get you going. It's exciting news for us because whatever 
we're dealing with. The God who made a mockery out of Pharaoh and their gods loves us and will provide for us. If you don't know him, if you haven't come to a point of faith and trust in his son's sacrifice for you, there is a reason you are sitting here right now. That God that we've been talking about has patiently waited for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. Don't harden your heart toward him. Respond to his call. We would be glad. We're going to pray in just a moment. We'd be glad to talk with you about that. We're going to, some of the pastors will be back here in this room, room one, right back over here. You can come back there and talk to us about that. If you're a believer, though, today, great, great news for us. Uh, we walk out of here to a new week, and we don't know what that week will bring. And we don't know, I don't know what you've been dealing with already this week, but I do know the God of heaven has committed himself to walk with you through life. And he has the resources to deal with anything that you're dealing with. You can trust him. Tell the story. Tell the story of how you've seen him work in your life. You can tell the story of what God's word says, this story, to your children, to your grandchildren. Tell the story to the people you work with. Tell the story to people who are in your neighborhood. Tell the story of what God's Word says. Tell the story of what God's done in the lives of Christians through the centuries. Tell the story of what God's done in your life to people around you and let Him call them to Himself. Just you stand with me? We'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your provision for us. We thank you for your patience. You could have wiped out this world. It would have been just to do that, and yet you willingly held back and uh, gave us the opportunity to come to know you. Thank you for your grace. I pray for anyone who hasn't taken that step that might be here, that they'd Take that step today, God. Open their heart and their mind to you. And Father, I pray that as believers, we'd walk out of here encouraged, knowing we serve a God who's in control. He's got it all in his hands and loves us with an infinite love. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of your Son, amen. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday.